Please be seated. And please open your Bible, if you have one, to the 119th Psalm, where we'll be for a number of weeks before, God willing, we begin our study of the book of James. Psalm 119, last week we introduced this wonderful text to you, and this morning we'll begin um, our time by studying uh, the first eight verses, the first strophe or stanza of the psalm. I'd like to begin our time by reading those verses and having a word of prayer. You'll find the notes in the bulletin or on our website. So, Psalm 119, the Aleph strophe or stanza. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong. But walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Lord God, The blessedness described in this psalm is a blessedness we desire. And we too recognize that we are wholly incapable of achieving this. We we need your grace, your help, your enablement. So Lord God, as we look to this opening stanza, I pray that you would help us to understand, to see the heart of your people for you that we might rightly desire what is truly desirable, that we might rightly abhor what is truly horrible, that we cry out to you for help. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled this morning's message, The Path to True Blessedness. And behind the meaning of the Hebrew word for blessedness is the idea of joyful, happy. And I want you to consider the reality that Every human being, one way or another, is pursuing happiness. And I mean that without exception. In fact, how we distinguish the honorable from the dishonorable, the the good from the evil, the people we admire from people we detest, is not that some pursue their happiness and some don't, but rather what we pursue our happiness in. What do people do that they think will make them happy? which people do that they think will make them content. Blaise Pascal, of Pascal's Wager, has this famous quote that I think is wholly true. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. I think he's entirely correct. Our will settles upon, among the options we have, that which we think will be most pleasing to us. And that might be fitting into a bigger scheme of things. Someone might choose to to go to the gym, even though there's some pain there, because they see as most pleasing the health they might gain in the big scope of things. 
If you get held up by a gunman, you may give him your wallet because you're more pleased with that than the options of trying to take him on yourself. But all of us are pursuing happiness. All of us are pursuing contentment. The real issue is where are we looking to find it? If you were to consult pop psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'd consider that people want first survival and food and drink, and then there's a list of things people want to be happy. You could read Ecclesiastes and and consider all the avenues that Solomon pursued to find fulfillment, whether it be achievement, whether it be physical pleasure, his 700 wives, and he says it's not to be found there, it's vanity of vanities. And you don't have to look far to see the sadness, the sorrow in those we'd imagine to be most happy. Our celebrities, the rich, the famous, their marriages, their family lives seem to fare no better, if not worse, than our own. And so Psalm 119 answers that question. It tells us where happiness can be. That The challenge, as I've said before, is not some seek for happiness and some don't, but where we seek to find it in. And so Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, the longest psalm, begins by telling us emphatically in six ways where true blessedness, true happiness is to be found. You're to see this as a challenge to the lies of our culture, your heart. True happiness is not found ultimately in a fulfilled family, in a career, in advancement, in the respect of your peers. True happiness True blessedness is found here. This opening stanza of Psalm 119 serves much like Psalm 1 does. You may recognize a similar pattern, the beatitude, the blessed are. It's it's a pattern, that uh, a form of literature that occurs in many places in Scripture. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. But consider these first three verses of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. So we're going to look at these opening eight verses. First, at verses one to three, with the identity of the truly blessed. Verse four, the basis of true blessedness. And then verse three, I mean, verses five through eight, longing for true blessedness. We're following the shift in pronouns. The first three verses speak in the third person. We're talking about people. We're not talking to people. Blessed are those people. Blessed are those who we're talking about. Then starting in verse 4, God himself is addressed. Second person, you. And then in 5 through 8, I, me, my. That's the shift. We're talking about, we're talking to, and then we're referencing ourselves. And so we're going to look at it in that pattern. But you need to stop and consider what you're thinking you'll find your joy and satisfaction in. If you don't get on board with, if you don't understand what this psalm is saying at the outset, the rest of our study will be pointless. The psalmist is holding up true blessedness. He's he's instructing us where true happiness, true satisfaction, true contentment is to be found, and then the rest of the psalm is pursuing that, showing us how to attain that, how to live that. And if you don't value this, if you don't believe this, if you say, well, that's nice, but the rest of our study of this psalm will be, in some sense, pointless for you. So he says it six ways, three pairs, 
And we're to understand he's describing one person or one type of person, one state. It's not six ingredients. Rather, we're looking at one ingredient from six angles. They inform each other. And so we're going to go through this. He states it twice. Blessed are those, verse 1. Then again, verse 2. Blessed are those. As we want to consider where this psalm insists true blessedness is to be found. What it consists of. Let this challenge, rebuke, replace whatever things you would put up in opposition to this. Not that there isn't some blessing in a family, in a career, but true blessedness. The centerpiece of your meaning, value, and contentment is held up here. This is the only firm ground on which to stand when trying to build a life that is stable. The identity of true blessedness. So let's look at the first verse. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So the first description, the first identifying mark of the truly blessed is those whose way is blameless. And the idea here is this, holiness, cleanness, purity. And this, to some degree, makes sense. Blessed are people who are pure. Blessed are people who are, conduct themselves with holiness. And I want to insist that this is a practical holiness. Now, the danger of reading passages like this is that we're so accustomed to, and, and there's something good about it. I mean, let me, let me pause. I'm trying to guard against two errors here. We know nothing good dwells within us. All of our righteous deeds are like medical waste. But we can so believe that that any time the Bible speaks about a practical holiness, a practical obedience, we can just think somehow we're giving God glory by saying, well, of course we can never do that. It's Jesus. That's not what this psalm is talking about. This is not telling people how to be saved. This is speaking to the saved, the people who are already knowing God. The fact that God's covenant name is used here in verse 1 makes that clear about where they can find their joy and their happiness in. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. This is not something that can only be done in Christ. This is a practical holiness. Consider how Genesis chapter 17, 1 begins. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Or better yet, Job 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright. We need a category for sanctified, frail holiness that still is real. That's what the psalm is talking about. Turn back. Let me illustrate this. to Psalm 18. You're going to struggle with some of the claims made in Psalm 18. If we don't have a category for frail, imperfect, but real Holiness. You can really attain. You can really achieve. Not meritorious. Not earning you acceptance to God. But nonetheless real. Lived out. Psalm 18. Look at verses 20 through 24. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept my ways of the Lord and have not act and not have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules were before me his statutes I did not put away from me 
I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, there's a sense in which it's entirely right for us to say, I could never say that. But David says this. And because this is an adaptation of his prayer in 2 Samuel 22, we have some idea of the circumstances. It's referring to God's protection of him and the the persecution he suffered under Saul. And so I think we're to understand when David talks about his righteousness and his cleanness, it's, it's not in a cosmic sense before God's legal court, but rather in relationship to Saul, David was blameless. He didn't strike him down. He had the opportunity and he didn't. He would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He was the duly anointed king. He was persecuted. He was lied about. Conspiracies raised against him. And yet David responded rightly. And he's saying, in this context, in this situation, in his regards, Saul and his persecution and my kingship, I'm innocent. I've done rightly. And God has come to my aid because of that. We need to have categories for that. Maybe lowercase r, righteousness. We, we get informed by Paul, and the book of Romans is absolutely dealing with righteousness before God's law court, righteousness before the divine throne. And of course, there, no human being, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, is innocent. And yet, in a lower sense, like in relationship to Saul, David can claim, hey, I, I, I'm innocent here. I'm innocent here. And the Lord has vindicated me. Perhaps someone's slandering you at work. You're innocent. You could, Lord, I, I'm, I've done what's right here. Please, come to my aid. This is the type of category I think we're talking about when we talk about blamelessness. Otherwise, we just turn this into, blessed are those who are in Christ. But you'll see, this is actually about a lifestyle of obedience, a lifestyle of conformity to God's word. And this isn't how we become accepted to God, But for those who, in Christ, trusting in the covenant God, are accepted, this is where true blessedness, happiness, meaning, and satisfaction are found. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And the parallel couplet makes this clear. Who walk. Five times in these opening eight verses, words for daily conduct are used. You see it in walk, whose way is blameless, way or path, Walk, verse 3, walk in his ways. This is about daily lifestyle. This isn't, if you want to use the theological categories, this isn't about positional righteousness, by which we mean, in God's eyes, from his law court, judging the universe, are you guilty or innocent? That's based entirely on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We turn from our sin, we trust in him, we're declared innocent, and positionally our legal category is innocent, not guilty, because of Jesus. But in this life, as God continues to save us, that's the language the Bible used, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we should attain to, we should hope to, some sort of impure, frail, but real holiness, conformity to God's word. Conformity to his pattern and image. And this isn't just something in the Old Testament. I'm I'm stressing this because, again, if we don't get this, you're going to struggle with Psalm 119. And this insistent repetition of, I want to obey your word. I want to keep your word. I want to do your word. And we can be in danger of thinking, well, that sounds like legalism. That sounds like works righteousness. And again, understand, this is a psalm not about how to be saved, written to those who already know God, who already love his law, 
how to find happiness, how to find joy. And I think you'll see as we go through these eight verses, gospel logic is at work here entirely. So the first description of those who are blessed are those whose way is blameless. We're talking about practical holiness. This is not something the Old Testament only says. Consider Jesus in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So the second description of this, those who walk in the law of the Lord, which, by which we're talking about taught in holiness. So the first way of defining this person is here's a blameless person. Here's a pure person. Here's a person with clean hands. And then the second description makes it clear by God's standard, not blameless in the world's standard. You see, they're the same person. The person who's blameless is the person who walks in the law of the Lord. They don't follow their heart. They don't go by what's trending on social media. They don't go by the consensus of the world. Blamelessness and holiness is defined by Scripture. And again, the Bible assumes we need to be taught what is good. The Bible assumes we need to be instructed on what is right. All too often, we assume we, we know jolly well what's right and good. In fact, some of our biggest troubles can be taking what we think is right and good and trying to say, well, God, you didn't really do what I would have done. So I was hoping you had an explanation for that. And the Bible assumes the exact opposite. We, we need to be instructed in God's law. I mean, look down at uh, verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I need to be taught what is right. I don't dare trust my own heart and my own opinion, my own thinking. I need, I need the living God to tell me what is right. Blamelessness, then, defined by God's word. A person who's taught in Scripture. So this happiness, first described as a person who's blameless, a person who's pure, a person who does what is right. Second, and that's defined by God's word. That's defined by God's word. And then he repeats the blessing again in verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Let's consider now the second um, blessing, the third description. Who keep his testimonies. And here the idea is practical obedience. Practical obedience. So they're first described as blameless. Then we learn that they walk in the law of the Lord. They, they're conforming their life to what's revealed in Scripture. And so the implication is what is blameless is what is taught in God's word. And now we see they keep his testimonies. This is practical obedience. Now, yes, I know in one sense you perfectly obeyed God's law in Christ. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the way you walk and go about your day. He's holding up this blessing for those who keep his testimonies. And again, this is something reiterated in the New Testament. We, we, can so, we can so embrace the free grace of God in Christ for salvation that we could ignore so much of what the New Testament insists about sanctification. Let me, let me show you some similar statements. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say the following, and this is how we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 
Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. First John, here's how you know you're a Christian. Here's not how you become a Christian. We absolutely want to make sure we don't get this backwards. This isn't how you become acceptable to God. Those who are acceptable to God evidence their new birth and their salvation by keeping his commandments. That's what the New Testament says. That's what this psalm says. There's a great blessing to keeping his testimonies, practical obedience. Then look at the next um, description. Who seek him with their whole heart. And here I think we have the clear guard against this being some legalism or duty. The one who is blameless is the one who is taught of scripture, who is also the one who practically obeys, is also one who's not driven by some checklist of performance, but rather a passionate desire to know God and to please him. They, they, they coexist. We're looking at one state of blessedness. So don't think this is something you can do apart from a passionate desire to know God. Who seek him with their whole heart. This, is, this makes it clear this is the whole person, the whole being pursuing God. Again, the assumption being what's true on the inside will bear fruit on the outside. Their outside obedience is simply an indicator of their inside passion and love for God. Who seek him with their whole heart. Look at verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. God wants all of you. He wants your passions, your desires, your love, your affections. And he also wants your obedience. He wants both. And we can be tempted to say all that matters is the inner heart. But understand, the one who seeks God with their whole heart is also the one who keeps his testimonies, who is also the one who walks in the law of the Lord. It's the same person. These aren't six blessings. It's one state of blessedness defined six ways. Who seek him with their whole heart, by which we have internal passion. And then it's described again negatively and positively. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Who do no wrong. And here we have an undivided commitment. This rules out the possibility that yes, I pursue God. Yes, I love him and I keep his ways. And I also do other things. No one can serve two masters. Part of what it means to love God with all your heart, part of what it means to walk in his ways is to not walk in other ways. This seems kind of obvious, but we're, we're hemming ourselves in here in a clear definition of this state of blessedness, an undivided commitment. And again, the New Testament echoes this as well. 1 John 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, this isn't how you become born of God. But those who are born of God never keep on sinning. These are entirely in keeping with New Testament commandments. This isn't how you become saved, but this is how those who know God through faith in his covenant find blessedness Happiness, meaning, but walk in his ways. The final description, walk in his ways. And here we're talking about a lifestyle of faithfulness. Notice also the comparison in this last description with the first. The first one, whose way is blameless. And now we learn that the one whose way is blameless 
is the one who walks in God's ways. Their way is blameless because his way has become their way. His path, his character has become what they're modeling themselves on. Their way is, in fact, his way. So, so how do we sum this up? Where is true happiness found? And again, understand how stark the contrast is with what our culture tells you. True blessedness, happiness, is not found in being at the peak pinnacle of your career. It's not in your family. It's not in the respect of your peers. It's not in the pleasures of this earth. It's in a life of holiness as instructed by God's word, lived out practically day by day, um, attended also with an internal passion for God. This isn't something external only. It's an undivided commitment seen in a lifestyle of faithfulness. And yes, I do think Psalm 119 envisions a practical outworking of this. Imperfect, absolutely. As much as the psalm lifts this up, go, go to the end of Psalm 119. I just want to comfort you that the psalmist is well aware we are frail and faulty. Look at the last verse of Psalm 119. Bear this in mind as you work through it. The psalmist is able to say everything he said and also verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So this is absolutely a flawed, frail, imperfect holiness, but it's a real lived-out one nonetheless. It's a real pattern of life. And this is where true blessedness is to be found in. And I'm spending so much time emphasizing this because the psalmist assumes after he lays out these first three verses, he puts up the golden ring, the prize, the the great desire of our hearts. He assumes the reader who knows Yahweh and loves God is captivated by this. He assumes the reader says, yes, I want that. And then the rest of the psalm is pursuing that. If you're sitting here going, that that just sounds kind of boring and unpleasant. I think the New Testament might suggest um, you may not be who you think you are. (laughs) Because you don't become a Christian by evidencing these things. But the New Testament insists those who are born of God keep his commandments. They're they're passionate. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this psalm is here for those of us who who want this. Yes, I want this blessing. Yes, I want to become more and more blameless and holy in my conduct. Yes, I want more and more of my life conformed to God's word. Yes, I want more and more of my heart to be seeking God. Yes, I want more and more to be avoiding evil and to walk in his ways. This is the identity of true blessedness. This is where it's to be found. And if you have this blessedness, you become stable when calamity comes, when death comes, when the election comes. You become stable, unshakable. And upon that foundation, the other blessings, but lesser blessings of family and employment, all these other things that aren't bad things, they're just not ultimate things, find their proper place and orbit. So that is the identity of the truly blessed. Let's consider now the basis of true blessedness. The psalm psalm shifts here emphatically. That you, verse 4, in the Hebrew is front-loaded. It emphatically is put in the first position. 
You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Okay? What's going on here? Well, the logic of the development is this. First, he puts up this desirable, blessed state. That should be enough. The simple fact that here is joy, here is satisfaction, here is fulfillment that will not disappoint, here is true blessedness, should be enough. Then we learn that that blessed state is commanded by God. It's not optional. It's not for super-Christians. Not only is it desirable, it is commanded. God commands we be blessed. That's the logic. The basis of true blessedness. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Just two points I want to make here. First, the Lord's word represents him and his throne. And the logic here is relational. God's word represents him. What I mean by that is this. How we interact with God's word, how we feel about God's word, is indicative of how we feel about him. I use the example of my children. I may give one of my children a a command, something to do, that in and of itself is trivial. Can you pick up the orange peel rinds from the floor? How big of a deal in the scope of things is it whether or not there's orange peel rinds on my kitchen floor? Well, if you ask my mother and my wife, it's probably more of a big deal than I make. But in the big scope of things, it's not that important. How important is it to me whether my child attempts to obey me or not? Ooh, very important. How big of a deal would it be if one of my children, I said, hey, Zadok, I want you to pick up those orange peels off the floor. He went, and walked off. That'd be a huge deal. Why? Because of what it says about our relationship, what it says about what he thinks of me, what he says about who he thinks he is in relationship to me. It's a huge deal. And if you came to me and said, Jeremy, it's just orange peels. I'd say, oh, no, it's not. It's my entire relationship with my child called into question. That's what happens with our relationship to God's word. God's word isn't some static thing separate from him. It's his utterance. It's his speech. It's what he has said. And so, of course, how we relate to it is how we relate to him. Over and over again in scripture, God makes it clear. How you interact with his word is how you interact with him. There's there's no room, in other words, to say, I don't really like all that Bible stuff, but I love God. Nope, those dogs won't hunt. I got that one right, Jeff? All right, fantastic. The Lord's word represents him and his throne. This is the same logic the author of James, James, the author of James. That would be James. This is the same logic James employs when he says, do you not realize that he who said do not kill also said do not commit adultery? So if you do the one and not the other, you've still become a lawbreaker? Same logic. The same person said both things. That's why you can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible you like. Any more than my kids can pick and choose. Well, I like that part where you said I could have dessert, but I didn't like that part where you said clean my room. No, they're relating to a person. And as they interact with what I say, they're interacting with me. The same holds true for God and his word. I want you to understand something else. The Lord requires obedience of his people. Now, yes, true, in a salvific, perfect sense, he requires perfect holiness. And in the book of Romans, that's the primary thing Paul's concerning. And in that sense, there's none who is right, there's none who does good, there's none who seek for God, and our only hope is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Amen. 
Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And for those of us who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we learned in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you might walk in them. You weren't saved from out of your good works. You were saved unto good works. God has commanded your precepts. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Let me put it another way. Everyone talks about it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But of course, a relationship matters about how the two parties relate, right? That's the idea of a relationship. Relationship is the relation, how two individuals relate. And yes, God desires a relationship with you. A particular relationship with you. He would relate to you as king, and you as subject, with him as father, and you as child. And, and those of us with children know the frustration of having children who want to relate to us not as parents, but as peers, or as pals. Well, they want a relationship, all right, a different one. God would relate with you. He would know you. He would be a father to you. He would be a king to you. And that, of course, makes it perfectly consistent for this king, for this father, to command his precepts to be kept diligently. And this is no new thing in the New Testament. So turn to John 14. I just want to make, I know I'm stressing this point, but it really matters in setting up the rest of this psalm. We tend to think relationship and rules are antithetical. We need less commandments and more relationship. That's not a biblical dichotomy. And it may be in certain experiences and relationships you have, it is a dichotomy. But when it comes to the living God, it's a false division. John 14, 15. This is Jesus. Intimate setting. The night of the Last Supper. The upper room of the disciples. He washes their feet. And he says in fourteen fifteen, if you love me. You will keep my commandments. Which means, if you don't keep his commandments, you don't love him. That's what that means. Or look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Notice the absolute connection there. Not he likely will or he should or be a good idea. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my commandments. Commandments. Jesus has commandments. They're not suggestions. Jesus, King Jesus, get this, has commandments. There's there's nothing new here. And there's nothing old in Psalm 119. They, They fit together. The same God, the same person spoke them out. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, this this is something that transcends the covenants, transcends Old Testament and New Testament. You, You need to understand it rightly. This isn't how you become saved. This isn't how you become acceptable to God. But for those of you who claim Christ as Savior, you're also claiming him as king. And kings give commands. And behind this blessing is the sovereign king of kings who has commanded his precepts to be kept diligently. 
So in the logic of this first stanza, first you hold up this desirable, beautiful, wonderful, blessed state. And you describe it. You want to know who the person is truly blessed? This is the person who's truly blessed. And then, behind that, and God has commanded that we have that blessing. It's because he loves you. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't care whether you were blessed. But precisely because he loves you, he demands, requires that you have this blessing in every aspect, a heart passionate for him, a life marked by holiness, a life taught in the word. Okay. So those are the first two marks and points in this psalm. First, holding up the definition of true blessedness. And we don't want to shrink back and dumb it down. It's lofty. I do believe it's attainable. Job was blameless. And then behind it, lest you simply say, well, maybe I've got enough blessings. I don't need any more blessings. Well, actually, the God you call Father has commanded his precepts to be kept diligently. Those two factors, the blessedness and the command, lead then, point three, to the longing for true blessedness. And this, again, this is where your heart should be responding to what we've taught so far. And this is where you're going to see some gospel logic at work. Because you may respond, by, I can't do that. I guess I might as well quit and go home. No. The psalmist doesn't respond to what I've just said and say, got it, I can do that. If I work really hard at it, if I really use my grit and determination, I, I think we can get that done. No, what does he do? He cries out for help and assistance. The same faith that cries out for salvation. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, propitiate for me. It's the prayer of the publican. It's the same heart of faith that says, oh, God, enable me to keep your commandments. It's the same, it's the same logic. I need grace. The psalmist neither dumbs down what God calls on us, nor does he elevate what man's capable of. This is good news. So don't be afraid to adopt this goal and then despair. No, the same God who commands his precepts models and teaches us what you do in response to that is neither dumb it down to something you can do or say that's unimportant. All that matters is you know Jesus. Eschatologically, absolutely sure, but clearly not in a full sense of how you live your life now. And also don't think this is something, okay, got it, I'll go and do that. But what do you read? Oh, that my ways... Maybe steadfast. Here's the right response to these truths. That true blessedness is held up. That God commands it of his subjects, of his children. The right response is longing, yearning, and to plead with God for enablement in obedience and holiness. To plead with God for enablement in obedience and holiness. This shows, A, that you get what's required, you want it, and you also don't overestimate your own ability. I need help. This, this psalm is going to show us how to do that. As frail, broken people who could not possibly on our own strength do this, this psalm is going to lead us in a path and a prayer by which we begin to call upon God for help. That's why so often in this psalm, help, unite my heart. Look at, look at this. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Verse 94, I am yours, save me. Verse 133, keep steady my steps. 
As much as this psalm celebrates and rejoices God's word and his law, as much as this psalm makes actually living out and actually doing the things God says a goal, the psalmist is also well aware of our frailty and he models for us again and again and again how we cry out to God for the help we need. Here's the grace. Here's the grace and the logic of grace. You can have a God who's holy, a God who requires obedience, a God who has commandments, and you can still have a God of grace because like any good father, he delights when his children ask for help. He delights when his children ask for help. Plead for enablement in obedience and holiness. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. So he pleads for enablement. Now I'll use one example here. As a father, I sometimes will um, have my children do something. And recently I, I gave one of my sons a task. I wasn't sure if he was able to do or knew how to do. I asked him to put away some hoses that had been out during the summer. And as it turned out, he didn't. And that's fine. And so when I inspected the work, when I went into the shed and saw them in a big circular pile on the ground, um, we talked. I made it clear my only disappointment wasn't that he didn't know how to do that. He'd never done it before. In some senses, it might have been unrealistic for me to even ask him to do it. I made it clear to him the only part that I was disappointed was that he didn't ask for help. He didn't ask for instruction. He, he didn't say, I don't know what to do here. Help. And, and God makes it clear that he will teach us. This, this psalm is going to call out and show us how to call out for help. And I need instruction. Again, look at verse 7. I'll praise you with an upright heart when I learn. I need to learn some things. I need some help. And God is pleased with that attitude. So I would, I would plead with you to, to not lower the goal, to not redefine blessedness as something lesser than it's held up to be, to not weaken God's commandment as if instead of a king with commands, we have a coach with suggestions, but then also not to minimize the grace that will enable us to cry out again and again, help, oh, that my ways Maybe steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed in all your commandments. Point B, long, long to be unashamed when reading God's word. Get the logic here? Then I shall be not put to shame, having my eyes fixed in all your commandments. The psalmist is experiencing reading God's commandments and realizing I don't do that. And he feels shame. He feels shame. And that's right. His, his, his solution for the feeling shame when he reads God's commandments that he doesn't keep is not to say, yes, but Jesus. And it's not to say, God never wants me to feel shame. The solution is, I need to be taught and I need enablement to do this so that as I'm reading it, rather than feeling that shame, I can feel, yeah, I see God's changing me. I'm becoming more like that. Make that a goal, a realistic goal. These are things we should be trying to do, that when you're reading passages, yes, I'm not loving my wife as I ought to. And I read Ephesians 5, and I, and I see areas I can get better, but I can also see areas where I have gotten better. And I don't simply feel shame, but encouragement, exaltation, as I see God is actually changing me. 
As John Newton famously said, I'm not who I should be. I'm not who I will be. I'm not even who I could be. But praise God, I'm not who I was. This psalmist, his desire is, I want to read the scripture and feel less shame. That, that's what it says. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, or when I fix my eyes on your commandments. That's what he wants. He wants to read his Bible and not conclude, I'm a rebel, but rather I'm a son struggling to obey. Okay? Point C, commit to respond rightly, and there should be the word to in there, to what you have learned in the word. Commit to respond rightly. So here's where he's making a promise. And it's not bartering with God, but rather, clearly, he's asking for help, but he's asking for help so that he can do things. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Commit to respond rightly to what you read in the word. So what does he promise to do? With sincere praise. I've said this before, but we get the blessing and God gets the glory. And that's how he intends things to work. He's the giver. He gives and he answers our prayers, but he wants us to praise him for it. He wants us to encourage each other with news of it. This is why sharing not just prayer requests, but praise reports is so important because God wants to magnify his grace. He wants to be gracious to Dave Lample and not just bless Dave Lample, but bless the five people Dave Lample tells it about and encourage them. And so the psalmist here is pleading, oh, Establish my steps. Oh, let me not feel shame when I read your word. Oh, teach me your word, and I will praise you. I will praise you with sincere praise. And point two, with practical obedience. With practical obedience. I will keep your statutes. Now this last phrase of the first stanza here, the first strophe, do not utterly forsake me, may seem odd to you. I do not believe the psalmist is praying that God cast him into hell in that sense of absolute. I think the logic is this. We've lifted up a beautiful, desirous goal, a blessed state. The psalmist wants, yearns for. We've added behind that the strength that God commands this. And we've seen in the response to the psalmist, he's entirely dependent on God's grace. He needs God to cause him to walk in the statutes. He needs God to teach him. And so as he longs to know God better, as he longs to achieve this blessedness, as he longs to obey his king and father, oh Lord, don't leave me in this. Don't leave me to try to achieve this blessedness on my own. I'm going to need you every step of the way. I mean, it's utter dependence on God and his grace. This isn't legalism. I want this blessedness. You've commanded this blessedness. Lord, be with me every step of the way as I try to obey your command and be blessed like this. It's, it's, it's pleading for more grace. It's pleading for more grace. Don't leave me to my own strength. 
Don't, don't let me try to do this on my own. I won't. This is how we should pray. Now, maybe you've just accepted mediocrity. Don't. There is a blessing God wants you to have. There is a blessedness God wants you to experience. Not only does he want you to experience, he commands it. But also understand, he, he doesn't grow weary of us crying out for help. How, how do we respond? This psalm models the response is not giving up. The response is not dumbing it down. And the response is not, I can do that. The response is, help. Help me. I want to do this. That's how God's children respond. The rest of this psalm is just continuing this logic. This opening stanza serves to Psalm 119, kind of like what Psalm 1 serves to the rest of the Psalter. Here is blessing. Here is the way and the path of blessedness. So as we sing our closing song, I would just plead with you not to turn your eyes from this, not to think this is an impossible thing, and also not to think you can do it in your own strength, but that we together would be a people crying out to God to give us strength in the pursuit of obedience to him and the pursuit of blessedness as we walk in his ways, as we keep his testimonies. Please stand. I'll call the worship team up and we will sing.